The Bay STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Developing Philanthropic Support for HBCU Research, a professional development seminar. Featuring Vice President for Institutional Advancement for the University of the District of Columbia, Rodney Trapp. Director of Diversity for Penn State Applied Research Lab, Wayne Gersey. Vice President of Institutional Advancement for Morgan State University, Donna Howard. Senior Advisor for Intergain, Una Perry. And Founding President of the National Coalition of 100 Black Women, Monique Akasi. Many HBCUs rely solely on federal and state resources of funding to fuel their research efforts. However, private sources of funding are playing an increasing role in funding research efforts, endowed research chairs, and technology commercialization of research outcomes and assets. Come listen to a panel of experts who will share their experiences to assist you in developing strategies for research funding from non-traditional sources. Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Developing Philanthropic Support for HBCU Research, featuring Rodney Trapp, Wayne Gersey, Donna Howard, Una Perry, and Monique Akasi. We're gonna be fairly loose in our organization because we have a small group, so we can be very intimate. But I have a few questions that I prepare, but I'm, I, I wanna open it up uh, after uh, a couple of rounds of these questions uh, for you all to ask, ask questions as well. The first question I'll ask is, despite the fact that HBCUs account for just 3% of four-year colleges, their alumni account for roughly 80% of black judges 50% of black lawyers and doctors, and their students account for 25% of black undergraduate students who earn STEM-related degrees. Clearly, HBCUs have been outpunching their weight class, yet many still struggle financially. What do you think is preventing HBCUs from capitalizing on large-scale fundraising and resource development research? Panelists? Um. So uh, I'm at Morgan State University, uh, and I've, I've been there for about uh, eight years or so. And um, sort of my first time in the HBCU network, and I, I, I've been in development a while. And I think that what I've seen, and Ron can probably attest to this too, is um, just staffing. You know, really lack of um, resource for staffing in the development area, and. Um, when I look at some of the peer institutions that, that Morgan, um, that MHAC sort of pulls us up against, like Kent State is one of them, uh, they have 108 people in development and advancement. Uh, and, and last year they raised 40 million in, in private funding. So um, the investment in staff is what I see is the major issue uh, mm -hmm. in us. We, get our arms around as much as we can, but you know, you can't hold the ocean, you know, in, in your hands. So, um, so I, I think that is um, the critical factor. Okay. Uh, so I approach all questions here with a corporate lens. 
Um, and uh, over my years in corporate America, I've always worked in the executive recruiting function. And as such, I've been able to recruit the CEOs and heads of large global philanthropic organizations for large multinational corporations. And uh, I leveraged uh, my relationship with them to garner a bit of insight around this. Um, I think one interesting thing to consider is that large organizations, and we're talking from you know, private institutions, large uh, organizations hire people from academic institutions to head their philanthropic corporate organizations. Hmm. Quite a bit of nepotism there over my 25 years in corporate America. I've seen multiple, and there's a cross-fertilization there where heads of corporate philanthropic organizations ultimately become heads of universities. And therefore, uh, I, I can count probably on one hand how many people are actually from uh, a historically black college or university that's the head of a corporate foundation, mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, uh, when we think of these large endowments, whether corporate or private, you have to think from the history that they're coming from, the history of very large, wealthy families, the history of um, high net worth in individuals, and then uh, uh, that, that history of corporations giving to that which they know, I think is the uh, exact opposite of what historically black colleges stand for. And so this population has to be re-educated um, around who is the HBCU and around uh, what is it that they offer. Uh, and I think that uh, our universities can do a better job of aligning their goals with corporate strategic goals, aligning their research against corporate strategic goals that do three things that are most important, and that is um, helping them focus on driving their product, driving their talent, or deepening their research, right? And so uh, that's, that's my insight. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, don't, I don't pretend to, I've never worked at HBCU, I work at a PWI, so I, I, but from talking to folks who work at HBCUs, I sense, so I, I sense some of the challenges that Dr. Howard and Ms. Perry uh, highlighted, uh, Dr. Perry highlighted. And the senses and causes, I think what you're illustrating is a cause. Uh, human capital, and infrastructure are essential to executing goals. So if you don't have the resources to to brand, as you were saying, um, to brand your impact, because I think what we're talking mm -hmm. about here is impact. If 25% of, of, of folks in STEM, because that's my background, are from HBCUs, uh, a lot of folks who go to the Stanfords or the, the, the schools that have the resources to brand well aren't aren't really aware of what the impact is of, of the HBCUs and their alum and the workforce they produce. But you, we can say we can develop a great, we need to develop a better branding plan and we need to do this. I mean, but if you don't have mm -hmm. the human capital and the resources to even get to that, it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, problem to solve. In addition to that, 
you want to get to long-term strategic planning um, to execute some of these goals, but I, I can give you a lot of reasons why my, my friends who do work at, and my colleagues who do work at HBCUs here. Um, it starts with human capital, and to be at a place where you have that is a privilege. Uh, we were on a panel next door, a lunch next door, and they talked about, oh, we need to compete for these dollars. You can go after money, but if you don't have the infrastructure to support the research, those dollars don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the reality, and you know, it makes you realize the privilege we have. Um, we don't come from old money. So in a hundred uh, meter race, we're starting in the starting block where people have been at the 50 yard line. Mm -hmm. But we have to start. Mm -hmm. We have to start running the race and uh, leveraging our, so what I'm hearing too is that we've had people, we've been able to develop people who are in certain strategic positions where they have agencies. So we have to start leveraging those relationships and, and making those same phone calls and saying, hey, we're calling in a favor. As, as a follow-up, which, which institutions um, in the private sector, or, or is there an interest within corporate America and the foundation community in helping to invest in this infrastructure piece, the, the capacity building? I know at, at one point, I've been in philanthropy for 30-some-odd years, but um, the at one point, capacity building was a big thing, and, and then it moved to program and project support. Uh, and there's not a lot of resources out there that help. Uh, are you aware of any resources or, or any organizations that are really interested in helping an organization that wants to build capacity, particularly in their fundraising operations or in their uh, grant development operations? I'm not, a, I, I'm not aware of any um, what I've, I've learned to do is to sell. If you want something, you have to you have to do a good job of making a case. The demographics are shifting, and whether you like it or not, they're here or they're coming. So if you're trying to build capacity, whoever the person that you're trying to convince or the entity you're trying to to convince, it, it's a business imperative for you to support these efforts, but I don't know of any, maybe you do. I think Kresge is, you know, the only one that I can think of, but Rodney, I really think that it's something that we have to do for ourselves because um, the foundation community, well, just, I mean, the corporate community is not going to do that. You know, mm -hmm. it's the foundation community that's going to, you know, build some infrastructure because to your point, the corporate community is interested in their own goals. And, um, but the foundation community, um, you know, they're interested in, you know, long lasting, you know, they want to be able to step off after a while with the funding. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to keep it going forever. So the, I see this as something that we have to do for ourselves is just put a hard line in the budget for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, in, in the cases I've heard of, uh, they've been one-off scenarios, but I do think where there's a relationship and where there's an established, um, you know, strategic partnership between organization and university, as a byproduct of that, um, the rider can be infrastructure. Um, and I think 
uh, once a corporation and any organization sees value in mm -hmm. that partnership, the rider becomes equally as important. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're all at the at a level where, where you're still aspirational, lifting as you climb becomes important. So collaboration, shared best practices. Uh, when we are trying to get out of the basement on some things, we, we should not be proprietary, we should be more collaborative. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's presents a challenge because if you don't, it becomes what my grandma would say, a bucket of crabs. And they're limited resources anyway. So, mm -hmm. Let's come up with the collective message that's brand, that brands us, because we're labeled either good or bad collectively, right? So why don't we come up with the branding message that speaks to us? This is how HBCUs contribute to the overall success. And next thing you know, because companies are, people like Lockheed Martin are getting it, mm -hmm. because they know what's happening to the workforce. Mm -hmm. So that's where you go in and you leverage. Um, I get to do it at PWI. So, I mean, I've been doing it at PWS for a long time, and one of the reasons well, I've been at one PWI my entire life, so not many. So I think you, they've been able to <laughs> establish the brand that makes them a tier one because they produce uh, these top engineers. And I don't think there's a daylight worth the difference between someone who graduates from Penn State versus someone who graduates from Virginia State. Because my top data scientists are are are, are just as important, um, just as uh, productive. My fraternity brother worked for IBM for a long time, and people say you went to HBCU, and he answered them like, yeah, and you work for me. So I think they're just as good as other as other institutions, and we need to leverage that. Last spring, in a discussion hosted by the Atlantic Magazine. Uh, Dr. Wayne Frederick, president of Howard University, argued, quote, it is a danger to the national interest to not invest in these institutions, meaning HBCUs. To the panel, do you think that America is threatened by the historical legacy of inequitable funding to HBCUs? You, you're looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I am. Um, you know, I, I mean, the higher education is, is, is good for everyone. It's good for families. It's good for communities. It's good for the tax basis. Um, it's, you know, um, it, it's good for civic engagement. Um, I, I just, I don't know why you would not want to um, keep these institutions uh, alive and thriving, you know, financially supported. Yeah, I, I think it's, if you don't believe it's a moral imperative, it's an educational imperative. Our demographics are telling us that our population is going to look, it looks like it looks very different. So in order for you to solve problems, research shows that the more diverse teams are, the better they solve problems. Some industries get it. And if you're not motivated by that, if you're not ready to prepare a workforce that's going to serve the populations that I'm talking about. You're going to lose your share of the market. So, and then it becomes a national threat. Um, I work in the defense industry now, and I know that uh, we're, we're being outspent because we don't have a STEM workforce to, to fill the, the needs of the future, the jobs of the future. Even in, 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 in uh, what people would call more technical uh, well, technical workforce. We don't have enough welders. We don't have electricians. 
because we're not investing uh, in those spaces. And many of the, the MSIs and HSIs and HBCUs prepare some of the workforce. So mm -hmm. if we don't invest in them, <coughs> we're going to have a labor shortage. Well, I think that's right. And I also think, though, that they have to have an awareness of who we are uh, as uh, black colleges and universities. I think that they're um, not threatened because they're unaware and unfathomed. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so back to the branding question, you know, um, you know bringing that level of awareness. Uh, I think I shared just a short while ago that we were at Google uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, talking about this very question, how can um, our universities support your research efforts from an engineering perspective, from a science perspective? And the first question that came from that group of, of product leaders, et cetera, was, are they a center of excellence? And which, which universities focus in what area of physics? Of, of how can we think of them? First, what are they? Right. <laughs> then, are they a center of excellence of sorts? And which universities focus on which things best? Mm -hmm. So uh, awareness of who and how we are, back to that branding piece. And I'm not so sure if the branding has to be a big marketing machine versus having someone with a and back to the resource, uh, having someone with a business development mindset who knows how to knock on a door and get in a room and have the conversation mm -hmm. over and over and over, right? I know that that's, that's a constant challenge at, at the University of the District of Columbia. When I first got there three years ago, people were saying, this is the best kept secret. And I said, that's, that's the wrong mentality. It should be the secret no more. We should be blasting all over who we are, what we're doing, what we're about, the fact that we have an engineering school. Folks, even in the city, had no idea. When the, when the newspaper, um, one of the magazines put out the, the business schools in the area, UDC wasn't listed as having a business school. Right. They had no idea, and this is a local paper. And so, again, telling our story constantly, getting our messages out, that, that branding, uh, exactly. is, is just as important because folks clearly just don't know. And one more thing to piggyback on what you're sharing. I mean, there was a student, um, and this has less to do with uh, engineering research uh, and technical research, but out of Northwestern University, which is a wonderful university, uh, there was a student who did a study on how minorities uh, do not benefit from um, mortgage lenders and there was this complete study. Well, that study was embraced and supported by Northwestern. Northwestern had the wherewithal to propagate it and share it with the likes of Capital One, JP Morgan Chase, and these banking institutions. Mm -hmm. And guess who got a big endowment from those institutions? Because that study was the basis of something that drove their products further and deeper into minority communities. It was to the bank's advantage, that industry's advantage to understand that question. They then took it further and said, what do we need to do to drive our product further? And they got all this funding to continue the research. So again, the strategic alignment of studies and then marketing them out 
to the appropriate uh, industries. Right. And, and if, if we don't tell our stories, if we don't claim our, um, someone else will. You know, if we don't claim it, and someone else will. And, and, and they, that's happened time and time again. I mean, you you go from one city to the next. Exactly. Things that affect our population. Mm -hmm. Which minority institutions are minority, minority serving institutions are really doing it right? Uh, do you have any examples of either um, colleges, four-year colleges or community colleges uh, that are, are really doing excellent work in strategic partnerships or new alliances or even private philanthropy that is, 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 is really uh, doing the right things and ones that we should be looking at as best practices? I, I know, for example, that you know, over at, over at uh, North Carolina A&T College of Engineering, um, <laughs> she makes sure that when she engages people, it's a value proposition for her. It's not a one-way benefit. So people say, hey, we want to we come and recruit your students. And it's like, well, you're not going to get the field. You don't help me out. So mm -hmm. it's pay for play. It's uh, what's the mutual benefit? Because people, I feel, often go to historically black houses and universities to poach talent. Mm -hmm. um, and what, so it's kind of like what happens in some of our communities. If you have access to great resources, what do you do? You get a great education, but do you go back in your neighborhood? No, you're not. You're not going to. So investing with those dollars back, I tell uh, when I work with corporations and I did, I work with our, uh, underrepresented students, uh, you say, hey, I really like McKenna. Do you have any more? I said, well, if you invest in my programs, I can clone them for you. <laughs> and and I, the way I would tell them is, like, how much do you invest in um, onboarding a new employee? And they'd say, like, $75,000. It's like, give me $75,000 and I can get you ten. So mm -hmm. it's a value proposition. And you're not going to get my list. You're not going to come in and do a info session and poach them. Mm -hmm. without investing back because mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be here after they graduate <laughs> and I need to prepare those whose shoulder uh, the, those who are going to stand on the shoulders the students we produce so it, it, it has to be a value proposition so I think Dean Roger does a good job I've seen pockets FIU which is a historically uh, uh, Hispanic serving institution um, but HBCUs I think North Carolina A&T to me has been the gold standard. Yeah, I, I would say I would say that too. I would say that too. I think um, Spelman um, um, has a best practice around growing their endowment. You know, they've they've um, more house there. You know, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and and you know, I don't know whether they have an investment committee or their board or, but they're doing something very right at Spelman of, with on the investment side. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it is important for us to uh, make sure that we're recruiting those kind of people to our boards. Um, and then we also are going outside and making sure that we're, um, you know, um, having consultants that are in line with our values uh, around uh, invest, growing investments, but also within diverse communities as well. Um, they seem to be doing that right. Yeah. So. I'm unsure of a particular 
organization um, that's doing it well, although I know that there have been some large grants and endowments given to a few universities. But I think the best universities have uh, caught on to the idea of partnering with other large academic institutions outside of our network. Mm -hmm. um, because through those partnerships, uh, I, I believe, I, I don't know if this is what they're getting, but I believe that the benefit is that A, uh, dollars flow through that partnership, especially when the university um, that's more stream um, can suggest that they're partnering with this diverse institution and uh, uh, are gaining insight as a result. PR flows as a result of the uh, uh, partnership. Um, and then also when it comes to that infrastructure piece, it behooves that stream organization to think about the infrastructure of their partner um, and provide those services. Perhaps one can lean on the huge branding and marketing engine that a Penn State has as a byproduct of the partnership. So, so I think that only works if, 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 if it's a value proposition. Mm -hmm. I know that if I'm cooking the food, I want to pick the groceries. So a lot of times with, uh, with, with grants or anything where there's big money thrown around, um, people say, hey, we'll give you 50K, but mm -hmm. I'm running the show. Mm -hmm. So that's not an incentive for anyone to partner. So it has to be clear, uh, mutually beneficial outcomes. And I think that's what why these partnerships have, have been difficult. And for example, Dean Rober again gets it. He's like, nah, we're not going to play that game. Mm -hmm. There's got to be something in it for me. And so, so I think if you can do it that way, um, it would be great. Well, I agree, uh, but I, I, I don't see it as just a um, one prong. I see it as a multi-pronged effort in that there's the partnership that one can establish uh, with that other university, but then the uh, institution, our institution, uh, should continue to develop the relationships externally. Mm -hmm. um, and building the relationship from the head of government policy, building a relationship with that CEO, building a relationship with those other strategic partners that that university might also seek to say, hey, I have the same relationships that you do. You're not doing me a favor necessarily, but let's put what you're good at and what we're good at together and approach the same people we already know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it becomes less of of the our universities being um, you know fed. It becomes a true partnership. Mm -hmm. So, so try, just real quickly, because I don't want to yeah. make the conversation. We we signed an MOU with UDC, mm -hmm. our Black Research Lab, where there's an exchange of students. So just like I want my students to come and do your students to come and do research with us. We hope that if you have the capacity to bring our students to you, if there's opportunities like that, but serving on board. Dr. McQuarrie serves on our board, on our mm -hmm. board. Well, some of our research faculties to serve on your board. So it's a true exchange rather than, um, well, what we want to hear about what are coming there. Theater, right there. I'm going to come a knocking. Ha, 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 ha.
What, again, partnerships are so important. Um, at, at UDC, one of the one of our newer, two of our newer partnerships are with MIT and the Brookings Institution, and and part of that has a lot to do with image and branding, because we know that those institutions have a certain visibility, a certain uh, cadre of supporters that currently we don't have access to. Now we're partners in a couple of initiatives that now put us at a very different level that people have never considered for the university. And so it can work for a number of different ways. Now I'd like to open up uh, to you and we'd like to meet you as well. So if you have any questions to fill to the panel, if you could go to the mic, state your name and the organization you're from and your question. And please do not be shy. You're listening to Developing Philanthropic Support for HBCU Research, a professional development seminar featuring Rodney Trapp, Wayne Gersey, Donna Howard, Yuna Perry, and Monique Akasi. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Good afternoon. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. My name is Juan Rivera. I'm chairman of the board for uh, the nonprofit Great Minds in STEM. As, as you heard, sir, um, we're sister organization to Bayer. We both started at the same time. Uh, Tyborn Taborn and the founder of my organization uh, started together to form these conferences. So um, we have a great appreciation for what's being done here. But I wanted to share something with you. Um, the University of Texas at El Paso, um, after many, many years, many decades of struggling to get their funding elevated, finally reached R1 status. And I think everybody is in agreement on the staff at the UTEP that it was due to the leadership of Diana Natalicio, the president. Uh, she was recognized on Time Magazine and so forth for the accomplishment mostly that she reached uh, um, R1 status for the university. But she had um, a passion for the community. Um, and one of her lines, one of her statements that I remember very well, and she used it often when she would go to the state offices in, in Austin, Texas, requesting funding, and she would uh, be here in Washington to request funding. She would ask the question, hey, I live in a minority community. The entire city is like 80, 90 percent Hispanic. And then she had the challenge that Juarez, Mexico is right there next to the city. So it's, an, it's a border town. But she would ask the question, is there any doubt that this community has less intellectual power and potential than any other city in the nation or the world? These, everybody has the same intellect potential. And that helped her a lot in getting the funds attracted and approved from the state and the federal government. She did partner 
also with corporations, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, the North Group, the aerospace companies, uh, because she aligned the research that was being conducted with the needs of those organizations. And so therefore they would come, they would supply grants, supply internships, provide research money, and of course they had access to the students. So um, I, I admire not Diana for, for what she accomplished. It took her 30 years to reach that point, but uh, by all means, she succeeded. That's great. Can be done. Absolutely. And thank you for the work you do with the Great Minds of STEM, formerly known as PNAC. I've been doing it for a long time. I look forward to seeing you in October. Thank you. Another question from the audience? I'll then open the question up to the panel and the audience. My next question. Uh, we know that the, the Democratic presidential primaries are, are well on the way. We have, you know, Iowa done, New Hampshire done, and I think the next is South Carolina uh, that's, that's, that's coming up. Uh, many of the candidates have promised to massively increase federal spending uh, on HBCUs. Former President Joe Biden has pledged $70 billion to HBCUs and other minority-serving institutions. Elizabeth Warren has pledged $50 billion uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has promised to make all HBCUs tuition-free and to invest $15 billion in their training programs and infrastructure. Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg uh, even doubled, uh, even debuted his $50 billion plan uh, in an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun. So funding HBCUs and MSIs is in vogue now. Can anyone provide any examples of bold and progressive investment leadership that's coming from the ranks of uh, corporate America and the foundation community? Because this, this funding that they're talking about is going to be public funding, but there's private sector support and funding that is also out there. Uh, who's doing it? Howard Hughes Foundation has some great work in STEM. I know that they're, they're one of the big ones, the Brookings Institute. Um, there's some um, Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Um, they, they invest big dollars. Uh, I've worked with Halliburton Foundation and uh, Schlumberger. So there, there's an opportunity. There's, there's definitely some, some opportunities there for funding. And so Schlumberger and uh, Halliburton would fly me into Sugarland, Texas, and tell me why they would want to support our students. And it depends what the initiative is. At the time that I worked with the Halliburton Foundation, um, their VP for uh, corporate relations <coughs> was female, so they were working on a gender initiative, so gender parity. And I just made sure as director of the multicultural engineering program, that if we were going to do a gender imperative, that it was ethnically representative. Mm -hmm. uh, because when we think, when we talk about gender, uh, people who talk about gender don't look about often look like us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it has to be an imperative. Like, hey, mm -hmm. if you're a woman, then you should care about causes that impact uh, women of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the intersectionality of it, or if you're a heterosexual, you have to care about causes that don't necessarily just impact 
people who are, are gender binary. So we, we need to hold their feet to the fire. So mm -hmm. there are some good examples. And mm -hmm. I, I, I'm a grant writer. I chase, I chase dollars. So I'm, I'm, and I'm willing to share my Rolodex because there's enough money to go around. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot out there. And we used, I used to get this book, you not know, get it online, with all the foundations and all the money that was out there. Mm -hmm. Just start chasing it. And it takes time. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, you have to kiss a lot of frogs sometimes <laughs> to get away. And if you have the capacity to do it, that's another thing. Yeah. Uh, we put a, we would have put a pause on it because we lost two staff people. So mm -hmm. we're not going to write unless you're basically guaranteeing me that I'm going to get funding. Mm -hmm. Because if you spend all that energy and you don't get funding, it's a challenge. Yeah. So I I, I think that um, there are a few corporations who um, would be open to doing it um, if presented with the opportunity if they uh, uh, knew of uh, an organization doing research in a strategically aligned area with theirs. But off the top of my head, J.P. Morgan Chase has had a huge um, investment uh, from two uh, diverse universities, not just HBCUs, but others, um, to help increase their ranks, not only from a hiring perspective, but from a product research perspective across mm -hmm. its card businesses, um, deepening its uh, what they call the uh, underrepresented segment um, of their uh, small business products, you name it. Uh, and so they definitely uh, have an endowment toward that. Um, I know Comcast Corporation um, definitely um, focused in that area. Although I believe at Comcast Corporation, uh, they are quite a bit um, tied to um, some other universities that don't fall in our category, but I think if presented with the opportunity, mm -hmm. they would be there. Quite honestly, from the uh, rooms that I've been in, I think that they would all be open to it, mm -hmm. if approached. Mm -hmm. I think we do a very good job of talking to each other. I'm not so, good, I'm not so sure if we do a good job of mm -hmm. beating the pavement in a traditional sales-like manner mm -hmm. uh, with these organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Sure. I, I really appreciate your corporate viewpoint uh, because I retired 10 months ago from a big corporate uh, aerospace <laughs> company. Um, so I was head of research for space systems division, and I had a substantial R&D budget at, at my discretion. What I would do, but I would go to all the government websites to understand what were the problems they were trying to solve. And then I would align my research and my direction in alignment with their strategies, with the problems that they were trying to solve, and allowed me to succeed at winning research contracts from the US government. But I also funded several universities. I funded, um, UTEP, Arizona State, um, Rochester Institute of Technology, Florida Institute, uh, Florida International University. Mm -hmm. For two reasons, I, I, I would reach out to academia. The first is because I knew somebody and I trusted them because I can't afford to fail in my responsibility. So I trusted 
that that dean of engineering would deliver on the promises that upon which we agreed. And then the second, I knew that the research that they were conducting would have a very close correlation to what I needed to deliver to my customer in, in the U.S. government. So it, it's a very, it was a very close alignment, and it was networking and having a personal relationship. If I had known of researchers in HBCUs and they were doing something that would benefit my goals and objectives, I absolutely would, would, I would travel to meet with them to understand what the research was because it's that important. Now, the corporation culture always seeks a return on investment. Always, always. It's not out of their <laughs> the good heart. Um, and so I was able to show that payback, that, in, that return, and as a result, all of my management trusted me, and I, I had a lot of discretion in, in where I spent the funds. And I, I want to say that DOD is the same way. They're not in it for, let's see what happens. They right. want to right. return right. on their investment. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, you, you know that. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I would argue, you know, if where there's strategy around how to approach government organizations versus more private corporate institutions, um, and if you know, one really determine where they should spend their time for the greatest return. You know, I would argue that the time to delivery in terms of actual funding through a private organization or a large corporation uh, would be half of the time spent in pursuing grants. A, um, right? Um, I believe that the number one mutually beneficial thing for uh, uh, the incentive the reason I do believe that uh, corporate organizations would be open is that it satisfies two things, not just the research piece um, that they would need, um, but also the SEC piece. Um, just as uh, these organizations have goals for the number of diverse heads that they hire that have been relegated to people who aren't necessarily in the U.S. dominant categories of diversity, just leave it at that. They still have those goals, so an ability to suggest that they're working with a historically black college or university to achieve them actually uh, weights even more heavily and augments the picture of their hiring goals, which are often filled with women who may not fall into the people of color category and people outside of the United States, like East Asians and other groups that fall outside of our category of, of, uh, of diversity here in the US. Uh, and so again, research alignment, research aligned with the strategic goals of the organization and uh, the pitch that we can help augment your SEC numbers that you have to report. Oh, by the way, um, I think is a, a wonderfully compelling argument. Incredible stuff there, I think. The, the, one of the key takeaways, and I, and I love your approach of going to the corporations and uh, the research institutions' websites to find out what their problems are. Mm -hmm. And you positioning yourself as the problem solver. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's key. And, and someone said it very well in an earlier meeting, 
Um, it is not rocket science to figure out this information. It's on their uh, shareholder reports. <laughs> Every company that is a company allows it, aligns their, uh, uh, reports their strategic goals for the upcoming year where they have misses and wins, et cetera, et cetera, right there in the um, annual report. So here's That's public on the website, downloadable. So here's a great example of having the first perspective and problem solving. We worked on facial recognition for a long time. And the original facial recognition software that was created could only recognize white faces because their teams were monolithic. So they didn't have people in there that could uh, say, hey, this might be a challenge. Had they had the diverse teams, uh -huh. it would have been solved. Same thing with voice recognition. They can only recognize male voices. Why do you think that is? Mm -hmm. It's no accident. So this is where we make our case. Exactly. This is where we make our case. Mm -hmm. and, and I applaud you for mm -hmm. seeking out faculty at, at MSIs, at HSIs, to do research. I think what I hope people who are in a position like you do is look at schools like HBCUs and go to the faculty web page and say, hey, I need a signal processing. I'm signal processor. Let me look at the, the faculty of electrical engineering and see what they're doing. I'm looking at jet propulsion. Who are my chemical engineering professors at Virginia State or North Carolina AT&T? North Carolina Agency, sorry. Uh, Morgan State and what they're doing. I wish folks at APL did that. Mm -hmm. I wish they did it more. And I think that's what we need them to do. Because uh, you have to remember, um, there's a lot of folks in academia, and most of them don't look like us. And what do they do? They do the same thing you do. Mm -hmm. They rely on their personal networks, but they don't look like you. That's right. So, and and one, one, one other final thing. I mean, our universities have the same brain trust that they do in terms of our students. Um, every corporation that is a corporation has a number of design sprints and hackathons all year round. Mm -hmm. I was at an Amazon hackathon actually that took place and one local university brought in their whole, uh, I, well, it looked like there were about six kids <laughs> to choose from, um, but coming, hey, we're here and we can design just as well. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, we can help you do research, right? So again, a multiple um, ways of developing um, the attention, educating, and you know, getting getting those relationships. And that's how you show up your talent. Hackathons, extreme engineering. That's right. Say, hey, Lockheed Martin, you're welcome to come to my school and say, we want to host a uh, hackathon. Mm -hmm. We want you to sponsor. Or we want to do an extreme engineering. That's how I did my summer bridge program. Every summer bridge program, every well, uh, orientation program for freshmen, first year students, had an engineering design component to it. And then I got my corporate sponsors to sponsor my program. And then one of the benefit of sponsoring was to judge the competition. So you could fight your flag first exactly. by interacting with talent. Exactly. And then you get the opportunity to build the relationship. Once you build the once you make the relationship, it's up to you to make sure that you maintain it. But those are the strategies we need to convince corporations and private foundations yep. to say, hey, we have the talent. Because if we wait for the resume, they're going to look at the resume. And, and not look at it. But when you see the talent, 
Undeniable. Then you're going to ask for the resume. Exactly. Mm -hmm. so, and, and then showing up, yeah. right? Um, yes, hosting, but yes, taking the best of your of your uh, mm -hmm. of the best crop of your students, undergrad, grad, master students, PhDs, mm -hmm. getting them on a plane and flying them out, mm -hmm. and showing up at the hackathons mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, my chef chapter Thank one. I'm flame to fame, right? My chef chapter won the hackathon at Chef National last year. Nice. So, and I was the advisor. So. All right. <laughs> Congratulations. Questions? I can go on forever. <laughs> yes. Good, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh -huh. My name is Shantisha Ingram. I work for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at our district office in Germany. So I work for Europe District. And I was sitting back there trying to figure out how to, like, really structure my question because it's a little complicated. At least the situation is kind of complicated for me. So I have an interest and a passion for promoting STEM amongst our youth. Um, I work with um, our youth. Well, here's the complicated part. So being working with the US Army Corps of Engineers in Europe, um, as far as our youth, my demographic is limited to the Department of um, Education students. So they don't, the students don't look like me and like the number, the um, as far as the number of minority students is limited, but one of the counselors at the local high school, and not even the high school, the middle, as well as the middle school, they, they're like trying to push STEM amongst the minority students, but trying to reach them has been difficult. And they'll like email me, can you come talk to the students? Can you come talk to the students? And I'll come talk to the students, but then I'll go in the classroom and most of the kids are white students and they don't look like me. So I don't know, I'm struggling to trying to figure out how I can be more effective in helping them and promoting STEM amongst um, the, the minority students, um, especially considering I'm kind of limited to the students that are on base. Like I can't go talk to the German, German um, students because then that's a completely different um, environment. And then the second part to that is I'm also involved in our Amy intern program. I'm on the PD team. And it's definitely been one of those situations where if I wasn't involved, the program wouldn't be executed because people don't, they're not really interested. So we have a program manager. She's very effective and very good at executing the program, but she doesn't have an engineering background. So then trying to ensure that the students get the technical experience as, as, as it correlates with their curriculums is a little challenging. So then that's where I try to fill in. But again, I'm struggling with making sure that we're effective because it's just me. So I, I mean, I can only do so much. So I don't know if you all have any advice or tips as to how I can be more effective amongst our youth, as well as with um, HBCU students who do come and spend the summer with us. So they're actually getting like you were saying, the partnership. So it's not just, oh, hey, we had these interns here this summer, like a check in a box. We want to make sure they actually return back to school with actually some experience they can talk about and utilize. So. I have one suggestion. Mm -hmm. um, because they're, they're coming after you to uh, come into their program mm -hmm. uh, and do um, and share information. So there's a little bit of power that you have in that dynamic right there. Um, so you should, I would recommend asking them or requiring them to 
produce the students that you want to be in the room. Okay. So when you agree to it, say, well, I will only agree if we, you're able to bring, you know, X number of students. Now, if there aren't any students available, then that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I suspect that they can do a better job of getting that talent in the room mm -hmm. uh, and you use it as a, a, as a form of requ as a requirement mm -hmm. that you'll come, uh, but you want to be able to speak to a diverse room yeah. uh, and there has to be some diversity in the room. Okay. So can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Do you think they know how to do that? What you just said? That, them? Yeah. Well, the people are asking you to do these programs, mm -hmm. but are not executing. Because I'm going to be quite frank. Uh, often, Doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work is telling really smart white people that they're not good at something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so often you have to model for them what it needs to look like. This is what your recruiting and sourcing plan needs to look like. This is what your outreach plan needs to look like. And I want to help. I want to share with you what I do with my uh, summer uh, undergraduate research program. They used to tell me, we can't find them. So I showed them El Dorado, you know, uh, the city of gold. Mm -hmm. They said they couldn't find brown and black people. Last year, there were 1,600 people in my pool nationally. So I want to share with you some best practices. And for K-12 outreach, there's things you can do. We have STEM kids that okay. my R&D engineers develop. My black and brown engineers have developed that you can rent out. And I'll give you the curriculum so you okay. can take it out and you can do uh, escape rooms with kids. We can teach. Mm -hmm. Third grade is how to build flashlights out of mm -hmm. popsicles and show them how to do build circuits. Yeah. You can do things with block to teach them basics of coding. Uh, and I, my stuff is open source, so I have some things that I want to share with you. Okay, thank that, you. That'll make you successful. So thank let's you. Make sure we talk after. Okay. 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 Yeah, because Mike, I did an elementary school. <laughs> they had an elementary school STEM day. Hardly any of the students who showed up. Like I had a whole table, I did two different activities, hardly any. You gotta talk to the color. parents. Yeah. If you, and it's, it's relational, it's not transactional. You can't send them, you, if, if you're walking around the base and you see someone that looks like you, pull them aside and say, hey, who do I talk to that, that has, a, has a network of parents who have young children are interested in STEM? Okay. Here's my card, it's, you know, Sending a flyer, sending a group me doesn't work for some people mm -hmm. if they don't know you who you are. Mm -hmm. You gotta shake their hands, you gotta look in their eyes, yeah. and you gotta say, hey, I'm an engineer and I wanna help develop other people like me to become engineers. Okay. Will you help me? It's, it's relationship building. Okay. You know, uh, it's not transactional. And, and there are other groups too out, outside of that, uh, that circle. There are, their clubs, their affiliations, their social groups, their networks that uh, people of color or the different minority groups gravitate to when even when they are in um, um, international uh, places. And so uh, find out these groups, partner with these groups uh, to uh, help find the, the, the population that you're seeking. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I was in Japan as well, and usually, yes, it's one of me yeah. and everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would say first, let that be your foot in the door. Don't turn it away. I understand what you were saying, mm -hmm. but do not turn that opportunity away. Because mm -hmm. with the DOD schools, it's 
limited to who we have, mm -hmm. but those kids that are there that see you, that's what they're gonna remember. Mm -hmm. I had, this is my, this was my teacher, this is what she taught me. So as they are growing up, it's helping them realize, oh, let me go and reach out on my own. Because as soon as we start saying, okay, I'm not coming in that door until you can do it. Like you said, they don't know how to do that. So you have to be the one to say, let me go ahead and start with this group. Now let me bring the rest of my group with you guys so we can all inter interrelate and intermingle. So don't let it be a dissuasion or you know some kind of negative to you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tiring. But just, just get in there and get involved with them because you are impacting those kids okay. and you are the face that they see that they wouldn't normally see anywhere else. So I want to I encourage you to just keep going that route because it's going to open up mm -hmm. more things. But you will always be that one face where it's going to be like, oh, yeah, and that's the thing because like like recently, maybe the past month, like when the, the counselor at the high school, he sent me like email after email after email, which I did this program, that program, this program is like, well, it's only one me, and then she wants me to pull. She wants, they're trying to increase the number of female students in their STEM classes and the number of minorities, but as far as the number of minorities, it's myself and maybe my supervisor, and maybe one other person who has an engineering background to even talk to the kids. So this that's also another issue. So it's a little time-consuming. Reach it out. It doesn't yeah. have to be your other friends that are not engineers, but they still look like you. Bring them to the table mm -hmm. again. You, you being there normalizes possibilities to them. And, and I'm going to tell you, it's personal. Mm -hmm. It's a labor of love. Yeah, for sure. And, and we don't do this work because we get paid a lot of money for yeah. it. Yeah. We do it because we quit, but then we get back up the next day and uh, we'll start all over again. Yeah. So, so it's good. Keep it up. We're proud of you. Thank you. Keep it up. Absolutely. Thank you. So I'm going to be all over the place, and I just want some guidance. I don't know if, even if it's related, so please, you know, stop me if I, if I'm all over. Uh, firstly, I'd like to take the opportunity to. I know you said you had STEM kits that you'd you'd like to share. I would love to see what you have because I actually work for Boston Scientific, and I've been with them now for 13 years. I'm a business analyst with them, but my passion has always been STEM philanthropy, and being in this role. Uh, I managed to maneuver my, make my job now to what I want it to be. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the recent years, I've actually, uh, I lead the STEM program in, in Massachusetts for our, for our company. Mm -hmm. And I also do a lot of philanthropy work um, outside mm -hmm. the US. Mm -hmm. Now my question is, is there any foundation that uh, a grants that we can get for money that we can work with companies with STEM outside the US that really need it? Because I'd love to go back to India, I'd like to go back to South Africa, mm -hmm. you know, people where it really, people are needed. I understand. Um, I would say the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, mm -hmm. but the places where I work, because we're defense contractors, mm -hmm. I, there's this limited opportunity. I think even with the NSF, but NSF is starting to focus on some international components too. But the private foundations that are tied yeah. to companies is where I think you might have more success rather than national foundations that are government funded. Mm -hmm. I think the um, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation yes, might be mm -hmm. one to try. Um, and, 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 and Mellon uh, has Andrew Mellon Foundation. international interests mm -hmm. as well. 
Intel. So me being uh, working for a company, so I, it's, it's not my money that I spend. I spend my company's money. I'd love to spend the money, but I, don't, I just don't have it on my own. So what I'm doing is, would they still sponsor me being um, individual or should I do it, link it to the company that I work for? I think you want to link it to the company because yeah. it's branding for them. Yeah, okay. They like that, that, mm -hmm. that you know, that's what we're doing. And you have to leverage that to get the outcomes you want. So a mutually beneficial relationship. But they like branding. They like them to be in the newspaper for all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, any more questions? Well, folks, uh, it has been a very rich uh, discussion, and I hope you've gotten a little bit out of it. I've gotten a lot out of it. So thank you for uh, our illustrious panel here for sharing with us. And uh, we look forward to meeting all of you and enjoy the rest of your conference. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Developing Philanthropic Support for HBCU Research, a professional development seminar. Featuring Vice President for Institutional Advancement for the University of the District of Columbia, Rodney Trapp. Director of Diversity for Penn State Applied Research Lab, Wayne Gersey. Vice President of Institutional Advancement for Morgan State University, Donna Howard. Senior Advisor for Intergain, Una Perry. And Founding President of the National Coalition of 100 Black Women, Monique Akasi. If you've enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.